Good morning, church. Oh, we can do better than that. Come on. Good morning, church. Man, if that don't get you fired up, then your logs are wet. What a great set of songs. Thank you, Pastor Brian, for introducing us, ushering us into the time of the word. Man. What a great God we serve. What a great God we serve. Have you ever found yourself at a shopping mall or maybe in one of those restaurant squares and you see a restaurant that looks familiar, but there's something about it that's changed. You go inside, the menu looks a little different, the staff may look different, they may have changed the decorations and whatnot, even the service seems a little better. But outside the restaurant, there's a big sign. You know what it says? Under new management. Maybe at some point in the past of the restaurant, this business or whatever, things hadn't gone so well and, you know, the patrons stopped coming or... I don't know, the food wasn't that good. Their Google review started to drop. And so at some point, they decided to make a change, and they became under new management. You see, the place was still physically located where it had been before. And for the most part, it was the same place, right? But it was now under new management. Friends, I ask this morning to you, When Christ came into your heart, into your life, when he became your Lord and Savior, you should have come under new management. And in Mark, as we continue through our series this morning, we're going to look at Mark chapter 2, verses 18, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 3 of verse excuse me, uh, verse six of chapter three. So if you have your word with you, please stand with me. There are 21 verses that we're gonna read. So bear with me. If you have the, if you need to sit down, then by all means do so. Beginning in verse 18 of Mark chapter two. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples fast? The disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in the need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of presence which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Chapter 3. And he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, it is, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life 
or to kill, but they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians, Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that you have given us this day that you've brought us to your house, that you've given us hope and joy and a reason to celebrate and to cry out. We pray that you will open our hearts and minds, Lord, that we may receive your word, remove any distractions in us that may hinder us from doing so. Hide me behind this pulpit, Lord. Let your Holy Spirit speak clearly in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As I mentioned, we're continuing through our series on Mark. This is now the third, fourth, and fifth of five parables which Mark is laying out in succession of each other. And Pastor Ryan mentioned the last few sermons how Mark is really trying to convey one clear point that Jesus is authority overall, that he is the Lord, that he has the power. And so as we continue through these next three parables, keep that in mind. The context has already been explained to us. We know that Jesus is all-powerful. But if there's one thing that I can leave you here with is this thought. The main idea of our sermon today is that the kingdom of God has come Therefore, we must leave behind the old and inadequate religious practices and simply rest in the unconditional peace of Christ. Our title today is Jesus, Our Rest. We begin reading in verse 18 of Mark chapter 2. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came to see, or the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? We see here that there's a group of people, and we don't really understand who these people are. They've come to Jesus with a question, and he's a rabbi of the day. He's making his way around, and so of course he's the guy to ask questions. And so they see something that looks different with his disciples that the disciples of John as well as the Pharisees followed. Now, it's kind of interesting that you would see John's disciples and the Pharisees kind of grouped together in one setting. But in this particular instance, they had one thing in common. They were fasting. However, the reasons which they were fasting were also pretty similar. You see, we know that John was looking for one thing. His whole purpose for being created was to do one thing, was to usher in and to tell everyone about the coming kingdom of God. So we know that John's disciples were fasting, looking forward to the coming Messiah. We know in Luke chapter 7, John's disciples are sent from John, who is now in jail at this point, John the Baptist, and are asking Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? We know also that in Acts, we find one of John's disciples way after Jesus had been resurrected and ascended, still looking for the coming Messiah. John's disciples were fasting and mourning and hoping and waiting and anticipating the coming of the Messiah. So they fasted. They waited. They hoped for. They sought out the kingdom of God, because they knew, as John said, that it was coming near, but not quite did John understand that the kingdom had come. The Pharisees also fasted at least twice a week, likely also on the Sabbath, and under any other occasion, they sought time to fast. The Pharisees fasted because they too wanted 
the kingdom of God to come. They too wanted the Messiah to be here. And so they fasted. And so they wept. And so they sought out the opportunity for the Messiah. Little did they know that he was right before them. Little did they know that he was under their nose. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, we read, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Pharisees, since the Maccabean revolt, said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So they fasted with sackcloth and ash on their face. They fasted, wanting for the Messiah to come so desperately. And so they go to Jesus, this rabbi, and they said, hey, why aren't your disciples also fasting? Are they not looking forward to the kingdom of God? Are your disciples not looking forward to the coming of the Messiah? And then Jesus, in the only way that he knows how, responds to their question with the question. We read in verses 19 and 20, his response to them. He says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. It's interesting that he uses the bridegroom. It's also interesting that he uses a wedding analogy. You see, the bridegroom was loaded language to these religious elites. The bridegroom was loaded language to any student of the Torah. In Isaiah chapter 54, verses 4 through 8, we read, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth is, he is called. And for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says God. For a brief moment, I have deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This isn't just a theme in the Old Testament. We also read in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9, that when I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen pure and bright for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints and the angel said to me write this blessed are those who are invited to the marriage suffer supper of the lamb and he said to me these are the true words of God the question is why are your disciples not fasting and he answers them why should they fast when they have the bridegroom you see they full well understood what the bridegroom meant they understood also what the wedding meant the bridegroom symbolized Jesus coming in all authority with them. There's no need to fast. There's no need to run around sad as if you don't have the Messiah. My folks don't need to do that. They have me. What need do they have to fast? They have me. There's no longer need to run around in agony, looking for the Messiah to come, hoping for a new day. The wedding itself is always a sign of a 
new life, a new beginning, inauguration of the kingdom of God. And so as Jesus goes even further in this wedding analogy, we read in verses 21 and 22 that he says to them, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old and a worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins for if he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins for new wine is for fresh wine skins. He goes even further to make it plain to them. Why would they fast? Would you ever show up to a wedding in a torn suit? What about a broken bottle of wine? Would you ever bring that to the wedding party? That makes no sense. We know from studying the New Testament that the wedding was a big deal. We know also that there are two items that were really important in a wedding, what you wore and wine. When we read in, or when we read in Matthew chapter four, Jesus' first miracle that he performs is what? Turning water into wine. He does this so that he can spare the shame Uphold the honor of the wedding family as he goes forth to this invitation given to him on behalf of his mother. You see, Jesus understood that wine was essential. To not have wine at a wedding would be a disaster. So what sense would it make for us to try to put new wine into old wineskins? The analogy is simple. The old wineskins have already been stretched to their limit. New wine comes into, new, into old wineskins and it expands and then it would burst. Essentially, they would show up with bursted wine bottles. To wear a sword up uh, suit that's torn up would make no sense either. We knew that the guests that came to the wedding uninvited, or excuse me, invited but had the wrong clothes on, they were cast out into the streets. They weren't allowed to stay and be a part of the wedding events. Jesus himself is letting them know that the wedding is a big deal. But the inauguration of the wedding is me. I am the son of God. I have brought the new kingdom. I am your bridegroom. And I need you to understand that there is no need for suffering. There's no need for pouting. There's no need for crying. I had the honor to go and officiate a wedding on Friday. It's a great wedding. There were two young people from our church they met here, they courted each other here, and they married here at our church. And it was fascinating to see, especially from my perspective, these two young people exchange vows. And as they looked each other in the eye, kind of teary-eyed a little bit, and exchanged their vows, it was a special moment. But imagine for a second, just in that scene, if the bridegroom's family or the bride's family just started crying out, sobbing, saying, no, don't do it. You're making a mistake. And just cried uncontrollably, uncontrollably through the ceremony. How would that look? Would it make any sense? Absolutely not, because this was a joyous occasion. Friends, what is your disposition this morning? Are you crying out, fasting, suffering, hoping for the kingdom of God to come? Are you in need of a savior? Are you waiting to be delivered? Are you hoping that someone will come along and sweep you off your feet? Well, friends, wait no longer. You see, the bridegroom has come and he's let us know that we can, less, we can rest in him that there is no longer a need to run around crying. There's no longer a need to seek out the kingdom of God because he is here. And we as his people should proclaim that from the mountaintops. There was once a time where religious practices may have made sense for us. Maybe at one occasion in your life, you thought that you could do a lot of things, check off a lot of boxes in order to Get favor with God. 
At some point, you may have thought that you can keep your old habits and then bring them into your new life as a Christian. Well, friend, you're under new management now. The old ways are incompatible with the new. There is no more mourning and weeping and fasting, for we have the bridegroom. It's okay to fast. That's a spiritual discipline that I think is healthy to do. But don't think that fasting will get you any favor with God. Don't think that fasting will bring you any righteousness because it won't. It is only through the Christ. As we continue reading in verses 23 through 24, Mark gives us another illustration. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? The Pharisees understood as the religious experts, as the experts of the law, of the keepers of the Torah, that the Sabbath was a big deal. You see, they understood that also there were certain things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 21, we read that for six days you shall work, but on the seventh you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. The Pharisees had two primary issues with the disciples of Jesus. The first is that they were harvesting grain. As they're walking through this field, they're grabbing the grain. Rubbing it between their hands, they're letting the chafe go and they're taking the kernels of grain and they're tossing it into their mouths, they're eating it. And they saw that as work. They saw it as harvest. Even though these poor disciples were starving, they didn't care, they saw it as work. And so they went to Jesus and said, your disciples are breaking the Sabbath law. They're working. Not only are they working, but they're traveling. You see, it was also against the rules that the Pharisees had incorporated that you shouldn't walk but a certain distance on the Sabbath. You can go maybe, and I don't know the exact distance, maybe it's like 10, 15 feet. But if you get to that point where it's considered travel, it's work. Therefore, you should refrain from doing so. They were so focused on the rules. They were so focused on the law. They were so focused on the tradition of the Sabbath. But they'd forgotten the entire meaning of the Sabbath. The Pharisees believed that if all of Israel could keep just two Sabbaths perfectly, that the Messiah would come. Just two. Not only were they fasting, hoping that the Messiah would come, but they were keeping the Sabbath, hoping that the keeping of the Sabbath would bring in the Messiah, would usher in to the kingdom of God. And if you think about it for a second, I don't know if they really meant to do harm. They wanted the Sabbath to be kept so that the kingdom of God could come. They wanted so desperately, friends, to keep the rules because they thought that the rules were the key to not only their righteousness, but for their nation's blessing, for their nation's glory, and for the coming of God, for their oppressors to be removed from their life, for the temple to be free, for them to be able to worship as God has intended. But they were off. They were far off. And Jesus, just as witty as he is brings up to them a story straight out of the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 4 through 6, we read, And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even 
when it is an ordinary journey, how much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there is no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it is taken away. And when the Pharisees asked him, why aren't your disciples fasting? He brought up to them, don't you remember this story? Don't you recall what David did? Again, with loaded words, Jesus took a simple question that they were sending his way and he blew their mind. You see, his Bible students, they understood that what happened in this story wasn't a good situation. It wasn't a good story that happened. We find David desperate, just finished a meeting with his dear friend and brother Jonathan. And Jonathan let him know, hey, you got to get out of here, man, because my father's coming for you. And he's going to try to take your life. And they vowed a pledge to each other at that point. And David left and ran for his life, now a fugitive on the run for all of Israel. And so as David is desperate and he's seeking help, he goes to the only place he thinks he could find refuge, friends, the temple, or excuse me, the tabernacle at that time. And so he meets there a priest. And it's interesting who David actually met, because as Jesus tells the story, David met Abathar. But the Pharisees knew very well from this story that David did not get to meet Abathar, he met Ahimelech. You see, because Ahimelech had been there that day waiting for God. He'd been there that day waiting to take out the bread from before God in the tabernacle was before him. It's literally called the bread of presence because the bread sat before him. And on this Sabbath, as David is Approaching the temple, or excuse me, the tabernacle, the priest says, well, I don't have anything for you, David. I can't give you any provision except for this bread of presence. But it's for God. It's not to be given to man. But honestly, David, it's all I have. And so if you find yourself desperate, I'm willing to give it to you. And David said, of course. He made sure David had kept himself holy because the bread itself was a holy offering unto God. You see, the priest knew very well the law dictated that the bread of presence was only for the priest to be removed on the Sabbath. But the priest also saw David desperate, broken, without hope. And so he knew that the principle of the Sabbath was greater than the keeping of the Sabbath. The principle was to do good on the Sabbath. The principle was to worship and help your fellow man. And so he gave David the bread. Not only did he give David the bread, but it was interesting also because there was one weapon that he had in the tabernacle, which he gave to David. And this one weapon was the same weapon that he had used to cut off the head of Goliath. It was a sword of Goliath. What's even more interesting is that David left Nob and went on to Gath, full of the bread of presence with the sword that had come from Goliath of Gath. You see, Jesus' words were so loaded as he responds to these Pharisees seeking an answer. Why are your people breaking the Sabbath. And he brings up this story to them to let them know, friends, you've missed the point. The Pharisees were experts in the law, but they were far from the intent. They were experts in the religious rules, but they were far from the principles which God had instituted for them. They were keepers of the Sabbath, but they were not lovers of their fellow men. And as we continue reading in verse 27 
In 28, Jesus tells them, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. His words were provocative. His words were fighting words even to them. Here they are, the keepers of Israel, the religious teachers. It was their job to make sure that everyone walked righteously so that they could be a part of the ushering in of the kingdom of God. The Sabbath was the highest thing that they could do. It was how they identified themselves even. Yet and still, Jesus is claiming himself to be Lord of the Sabbath. It was incendiary. His words sparked fire within them. For the second time now in Mark, he uses the title, the Son of Man, to let them know exactly who he is. He is the one whom all authority is under. Jesus is saying outright that he alone is the authority, that he is higher than the Sabbath, that he is more prominent than they could even see. Only Jesus can give his own preaching illustrations, and he does just that. As we begin reading in Mark, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we read a story that Jesus seeks to explain even further the true intent of the Sabbath. And of the fifth of these five parables, Mark seems to really use this point to bring, bring home his entire concept. We read in verse 1, again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that he might accuse him, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to heal or to kill, to save life? or to take, but they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, seeking how they would destroy him. They were angry. They missed the point. They had the Savior looking them in the face. The kingdom of God had come. And here they are thinking that Jesus himself is delaying by not keeping the Sabbath law, the kingdom of God for coming. And say they sought to get rid of him. They sought to make him go away. The Messiah had come and all they saw, all they saw was sin. All they saw was a rule breaker. All they saw was that someone that was going to keep them away from the Messiah. The observance of days and seasons is not wrong in itself, but when we take it and we place it over honoring God and taking care of your fellow man, we've missed the point. Jesus never tells them not to keep the Sabbath. He just lets them know that he is Lord over the Sabbath. The criterion of the Sabbath is mercy, not ritual. The question then is whether something is allowed or whether it's not allowed to happen on the Sabbath simply because they have written it out. When the inception of the kingdom of God came, Christ came to be our true Sabbath 
rest. He came so that we no longer needed to do things, so that we no longer needed to have checklists, so that we no longer needed a specific day only where we could have rest. You see, Christ came into the world to be our ever-present rest. He came so that we would not just rest on Friday evening to Saturday evening. He came so that we can have rest 24-7, 365 days a year. This morning we've gathered on the Lord's Day. Revelations 1 talks about John received his vision on the Lord's Day. And he wrote the, all, the entire book of Revelation based on that vision. We know from the early church that the Christians were known for meeting on the Lord's Day, which was Sunday morning. But friends, make no mistake, what we're doing here, meeting will not save one soul. It's important. And we believe that it's important and we value it. But friends, not one Sunday morning will save your soul. Galatians 4 verses 8 through 11 read, Formerly, When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. Oh, I am afraid that I have labored over you in vain. Friends, are you under new management today? The old ways are no longer compatible with the kingdom of God. The old religious practices, your old lifestyle is no longer compatible. In Colossians 2, verse 16, we read, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Friends, there is nothing that you can do that's going to draw you closer to God lest you put all your faith in him. You lay down whatever matters. You pick up your cross and you follow him as he told Matthew. Imagine a pianist who's been taught how to play piano for all of her life. Yet, when she gets on stage, she fails to play music at her recital. Or maybe even a dancer who's been taught to dance professionally and knows all the steps. And as she goes through each step, one by one, She does so without even the slightest bit of conviction. Friends, beloved, we have Jesus, our Savior. There is no longer a need for us to fast, hoping for a better day. The only day that we should look forward to is the return of the Messiah. And that day will come. But until then, we have to tell the world that we are under new management. The old ways are incompatible with our new lifestyle. You may have been a bartender once in your life, but you're no longer giving out that type of wine. You're giving out the wine of life. You may have been a roller skater in your heyday. Skating through the skating rink on Friday evenings, that's cool. But friends, as you make your way through life now, I pray that you're telling somebody about the Messiah who's come. You may be a construction worker building buildings. And maybe this was your end. This was the means by which you saw yourself as being accomplished in life. When I joined the military in 2004, I almost had no Real vocation before that, to be honest with you. And so I saw it as a way for me 
to get ahead, to have a little bit of significance in life. And it became an idol. It became an idol for me until I said, you know what, this job is not my righteousness. This uniform doesn't define me. I'm under new management. I may look the same, but I am not. What religious framework are you assigning to the Sabbath? What duty or obligation are you assigning to Sunday mornings? Are you here out of compulsion because it's the right thing to do? Would you rather be cutting your grass right now? I remember Sunday mornings growing up where the whole town was shut down, even in Charlotte. The ABC stores, of course, were closed. The golf course was closed. It was a time where everyone did the church thing, right? I think they called them blue town laws or something like that. Blue label, I forget, blue ribbon. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Nowadays, you leave your neighborhood and folks are cutting grass and they're washing their cars on Sunday morning and their malls are filled with people and Sunday's not what it used to be. Friends, Sundays were meant to do one thing and one thing only. It is for a gathering time for us to praise and proclaim the Lord on the Lord's day. Are you tired of trying to keep up with the Joneses? Are you try, tired of following the rules? Are you here but your heart is somewhere else? Are you anxious for football? Are you excited to go apple picking in October and you want to skip church? That's fine, friends. Or are you here because it is where we come to worship the Lord and Savior as a congregation, it's where we meet to say to the world, Sunday mornings are a time where I and my family will come and be with the saints. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30 read, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, friends, is easy, says Jesus, <laughs> and my burden is light. Do I identify more with the tax collectors who like Levi came to Jesus with only their sin, friends. Is there anything that you wish to bring here this morning that's going to bring you closer to Jesus? My dear friend, Kevin quoted Jonathan Edwards last week, and I'd like to quote him quoting Jonathan Edwards. You contribute nothing to your salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. Friends, if you've come here this morning with anything other than sin, I'm sorry. It's not going to do anything for you. Simply rest in Christ this morning, for he has come. He has come indeed. The song we sang earlier said, shout it. Go on and scream it from the mountains. Go on and tell it to the masses that he is God, that he is God. There is nothing that we could ever do to earn God's favor. It's okay to let the world know that we have things we're struggling with. It's okay to let your brother and sister know in small group that you still have things that you're working through. It's okay to be vulnerable, friends, because your sin is your offering to the Lord. And I ask you right now, have you laid down your burdens or do you still keep them close to you? Do you still see your keeping of Sundays and your 
Bible study fellowships and your small group attendance and even your volunteering with the children's nursery is an opportunity for righteousness, friend? It's not. It doesn't matter how many songs we sing. If your heart hasn't been broken for your sin and if you haven't repent and given yourself to Jesus, friend, then you are not you are not to have a reason to celebrate. But if you have, then you are to shout and sing it to the masses. In a few seconds, I'm going to ask you, if you've never given your life to Christ, if you have never yielded to the Holy Spirit, I'm going to ask you to do so. There's one verse in chapter 2 of verse, uh, Mark that we didn't spend a lot of time on. I like to go back to it briefly. It's not good homiletics, but I'll do it anyway. Verse 20, Jesus said, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast on that day. You see, the disciples had nothing to be ashamed of. They had nothing to cry about because the bridegroom was with them. They had the Savior. The Messiah had come. And so they made it their business to go around and telling everybody. But there was a day, friends, when the Messiah was snatched away from them. He was literally torn from their hands. Violently, he was taken from them. And in front of a kangaroo court, he was convicted of sin, of treason even, of violating the Sabbath rules. And they crucified him. And he went voluntarily on the cross for the same sinners who had condemned him to, to death. Only for them. Only for their sin. Friends, he died for our Sin, But oh, did he not stay in that tomb. You see, they fasted on Friday night. And on Saturday morning, they fasted and wept. Saturday night, they continued to fast. Sunday morning, as Mary found herself famished, I'm sure, walking through the garden, looking for the tomb of Jesus so that she could anoint her body. She found herself fasting until she bumped into a gardener. And she said to them, hey, where is my savior or my Lord at that point? She hadn't fully grasped what had happened. I'm looking for my Lord. Have you seen him? And the gardener said one word, Mary. Mary, Jesus called her name. And at that point, her entire world had changed. She recognized that he was the Messiah. No longer was he just the Lord, but he was the risen king. And so she did one thing, friends. She ran and told everyone she knew that no longer is Jesus in a grave. No longer is he just the Lord, but he is the Messiah and he has come to free us from our shame. Mary, who had been freed from her shame and guilt, could finally say, hallelujah. He is risen. He's here. And so this morning, friend, do you have a savior to herald do you have a king by which to tell everyone about? Revelation chapter 22, verse 17 reads, The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water 
of life without price. Friends, as I get ready to close here, I'd like to take a moment and testify. Can I do that briefly? Can I testify? I turned 39 this morning. I know I don't look it. And um, you're right. That's, <laughs> that's a reason for me to be happy. You see, when I was 18, I didn't think I'd make it to 19. I had friends that were taken off this earth before they finished high school. And I was no better than them. I had friends that overdosed in high school who were killed doing things that they shouldn't have been, but that was just the lifestyle that we were caught up in. And they didn't know any better. We didn't know any better. So I thought 19, I'd be gone. I never thought I'd make it to 19, friends. And 20 years later, I stand before you, not as the example, but to shout and proclaim that Jesus is able to save your soul if you simply kneel to him. February 2003, when I was 19 years old, I gave my life to Christ. Are you ready, friend, to give up your old ways? Because they're incompatible with the new kingdom of God. If you have never asked Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life, I'm going to pray here briefly. And I would ask that you would consider, friend, consider accepting Jesus into your life. Tomorrow is not promise or promised. We had a dear brother that was taken away from us quickly just this past weekend. Tomorrow is not promised, friends. Now is the time. Come, all who are weary. Come to Jesus. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that you have come to deliver us from sin, from guilt, from shame. Forgive us of our sins. We proclaim and we accept you now as Lord and Savior. We believe and confess, Lord, that you died for our sins, Lord. We were the sinners, you were the sinless, yet you took on yourself our sin and shame and you bore it on the cross. But not only did you take it, Lord, but you rose from the grave. And we proclaim you now as our risen Savior and we believe that to be true. May we go forth, Lord, and shout it from the mountains. May we tell everyone who we come in contact with, Lord, that you are God. In Jesus' name, amen. If it is your first time ever praying that prayer, I ask that you would let us know so that we can come alongside and be with you. There's a connect card in the pew in front of you. Take it, fill it out. Doesn't take much effort. If you don't want to fill it out, then come see one of us in the lobby. There's a whole team of people waiting for you to come. Please, brother, lead us in worship.